Hello and welcome to the Rebooted Open Fire podcast sponsored by Frank and Risk Management Services, a new series of podcasts focusing on the fire safety industry and tackling the current issues facing responsible persons in the commercial and residential sectors. My name's Tom Gilbert and my co-presenter is David Calvert. Hello, Tom. How are you, David? That was weird because you never do the intro, do you? I always feel like it's your your place to do them. Yeah, I feel like I'm, I come across as more um, professional with the intro. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I mean, I'm the celebrity. Do you think I should reread it? <laughs> <laughs> I think I did all right. No, that was very good, Tom. That was very what good. What have you been up to this week, Dave? Um, I shaved my beard off. So have I. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, going on, I'm going on a holiday tomorrow. Where are you going? Into Thailand. Are oh, you? Yes. The land of opportunity. Palm trees. And I don't know. I've never been there. I'll tell you when I come back. I'll tell you about it next week. Can you grab the um <laughs> can you bring the grab the fire codes and just tell us whether they're better or worse? You than want ours? me to grab the Thailand fire codes while I'm over there? Yeah, get them translated locally. Yeah. That, that seems like a reasonable request. Wonderful. Who's in the uh, studio today, Dave? Uh this week we've got Paul Bryant um from Firecubed coming in to talk about his book. Fire Strategies, Strategic Thinking. It's a great book. Um, we'll introduce Paul very shortly. Um, however, first we need to go over to Lucy in the, I believe she said she was going to be in Egypt, Egypt this week. Cue the Egyptian uh, sound effects from our producer. Hello, Lucy, can you hear us? I can just hear you. So, What's going on in the news this week, Lucy? So I struggled with my job this week. But what I... <laughs> no, inevitable. <laughs> That's standard. But what I can tell you, if you remember from episode two, that the world's longest fire in Centralia, Pennsylvania... How's that going? Still burning. Still burning, okay. Volvo is recalling almost 70,000 cars in the UK over concerns that they could catch fire. Wow. Any particular model? I believe it's across a range of models. Diesel. Is it? That's a type of fuel. <laughs> Are we going models. back to your lack of research? The Volvo diesel. Yeah. Maybe if we don't ask questions on the news beats. No, you don't like that, do you? <laughs> Let's hope it's true because Volvo I sense the atmosphere gets frosty when you query Lucy about her news, uh, news reports. And in California, they have carried out enforced power cuts to 800,000 homes as a proactive measure to stop wildfires. Why does power cut stop wildfires? So they turn off all the electricity <laughs> to the houses to stop. Any fires in the woods? woods. <laughs> if we just fact check that for next week. Yeah. 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 So maybe, maybe you could look into that and again come back to us on that. If possibly next week you could fact check them before <laughs> the news. So Lucy, where are you going to be reporting from next week? <laughs> London. London. Okay. Wonderful. We'll look forward to, um, to the, the, the bells of Big Ben, I'm guessing, in the background and... Uh, do you think they would have finished the work? Maybe a, a pearly king and queen <laughs> shouting in the background. <laughs> Doing the Lambeth walk. Thanks, news. Thanks, Lucy. Okay, on to our guest for this week. Um, we've got two people in the... We have got two people. So this week we're going to be talking about fire strategies um, and fire strategists. If you could just pass us the book over, that's what I'm generally pointing <coughs> to. Okay. Um, and we've got with us um, Mr. Paul Bryant, author of Fire Strategies, Strategic Thinking. Um, spent um, 
a large portion of his career at Kingfell and he's now a uh, director of his own business, Firecubed. Correct, indeed, yes. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you. Thank you for having me, first of all. It's, uh, it's certainly an interesting experience so far. and uh... It's nice to have you. I've had, I've had a good read-through of your book. Um, we're going to go into that in some detail. Sure. Um, with us today, we've also got um, Head of Fire Engineering, Anthony Robson from Frank and Risk Management Services. Hello. Hello, Anthony. How are you? Not too bad, mate. Thank you. Okay. So we're just going to have a little look at uh, fire strategies, the sort of, sort of people that do fire strategies. What's involved in a fire strategy, really? Mm. So, um, what sort of buildings, in your opinion, would warrant a documented or an explicit fire strategy? Well, I started off by thinking that every complex building should have a fire strategy, something that, that tells you the means necessary for fire protection and fire engineering the building for means of escape, for firefighting techniques. But now, I think probably most buildings do qualify. In fact, I put in my book that every building in the in in the world is effectively got a fire strategy it's implicit even a, even a home has a smoke alarm or has a fire doors possibly at the front door and has electrical systems that work under certain conforming requirements and that sort of thing mm. paul i know you've worked on a couple of um, PAS standards and been involved in various british standards as well do you want to just, just sort of give the listeners a little bit of a, a background of the of the standards that you've been involved in Okay, well, I started off uh, many years ago when I first joined the fire industry. I was working on British Standard 5839 Part 1, with the fire detection standard. And uh, I've been involved in various other standards since then. I was chairman of a BS committee for nearly 20 years, would you believe? Uh, it was uh, FSH 12.4, which looked after the BS 7273 series, which covers the activation of fire protection measures from fire detection systems. I got involved in BS 6266, which covers the fire protection of electronic data processing installations, and uh, also got involved in fire safety engineering as part of the PDs, as of the 7974 series. And then, uh, then in 2007, I, I thought I'd do something a bit different, mm. and I tried to write a, a standard on fire strategies, and that was uh, past 9-11. And uh, after that, I wrote the book two or three years later. Well, while I was, uh, after my business, King Phil was on for a few changes and I moved myself off to America opened a bar in and restaurant in Key West and really uh, that was uh, so the, <laughs> so we can throw the fire engineering part today away Let's yeah, no, that sounds change, yeah. so, so tell bar. us a little bit about the bar in Key West well the bar in Key West is something basically I had uh, obviously after you have a big business that uh, goes through a few changes uh, not good changes I would say uh, where there's, uh, there's obviously a recession and most of my big clients have dried up and things. So I, I thought I'd take a new move. I thought I'd go out to America and uh, try my luck. What was it called? The bar was called the Key West Pub. Oh. Did it have a I've theme? Was it a British, <laughs> traditional British yes, pub? Yes, so I was or? trying to introduce the yeah, British-style themes in it. I even tried to introduce a, a nice Indian curry menu because there's very few Indian yeah. restaurants, especially in Florida. And uh, it, I tried it for a year. Lost a bit more money and came back. <laughs> <laughs> and I've read a book about that too. Oh, have you? Yeah, it's three books uh, called Island on a Sea of Alcohol. Wow. Yeah. See, that sort of sort of quite Island read. on a Sea of Alcohol. That I, is, I would have yeah. instantly thought oh, that was Tom's autobiography. Yes, <laughs> nothing to do with fire safety. But then I came back and uh, and I've been working on back on fire strategies since then. Yeah. Um, I feel like maybe we should um, have Paul back on the show. We'll have a read of um, Islands on a Sea of Alcohol. Alcohol. 
and uh, maybe get pulled back in and we can have an off-topic off episode. It's not much fire in it, by the way. No. So it's I mean, that's just at the end of the story yeah. when it burned down. <laughs> yes, I guess. Yeah, for the insurance. <laughs> so you probably need to go back to some sort of fire engineering Allegedly. conversation. I think we should, yes. I would imagine. So in, in, in your book, Paul, um, you make a point about um, fire strategies should be an organic document, um, should be modified and adjusted over time. Um, Anthony, would you would you agree with that? Do you see the fire strategy document as a static document, or is it a kind of something that should be adapted with the building? Uh, I think it depends on the building, I guess. I mean, the simpler buildings, the fire strategy will probably always remain the same, uh, fairly basic document. But obviously, the more complicated the building, the more complicated the systems are that are in it. Over time, the systems will get maintained, maybe slightly altered. Um, and, as, you know, the fire strategy needs to be updated to reflect any changes to these systems so they can be maintained effectively. But certainly, you know, just even a basic building, uh, work will get done and, you know, people are putting back structural elements and, you know, they don't know what, if it's got to have a fire rating or what's required. So even the most basic building requires some level of strategy to kind of identify so, what's needed. Paul, how, how often should a fire strategy be reviewed or at what stages or, or points in its life uh, should uh, a, a responsible person be looking at reviewing or getting a professional person okay, to review their strategy? Yeah, it's a, it's a hard to, to put an actual figure on it, but I would say if there's a ma major modification to a building, then the strategy has to be reviewed. Yeah. If there's a change of occupancy of the building, the strategy should be reviewed. And of course, if the risk profile has changed, once again. Uh, but otherwise, perhaps every few years, just making sure that the strategy is still fit for purpose. Or perhaps if there's a change in standards, yeah. as, as we, we might be sort of undergoing in, in due it course. Could be. Although, although they tend to agree that the standard that was in existence during the construction or the modification is a standard that would still be applicable. I guess, so you, like now, obviously, Paul, looking at the buildings that are all, you know, all different cladding systems and stuff that are being taken off buildings. Yes. At that stage now, you probably are reviewing the fire strategies yeah. because of, obviously, government-led advice. But. Well, hopefully they are. But, uh, I mean, the, the, the term fire strategy is still not that well understood. No. And, uh, and I've seen fire strategies that are on two or three pages of a piece of paper for a complex building. Yeah. I've seen massive fire strategies that are, that are like the war and peace, yeah. but uh, most of it is, is appendices full of information. I feel like there's some um, sort of disagreement over what various documents are called. I mean, I frequently have been asked to do fire strategies, fire procedures, mm. fire risk procedures, fire safety procedures, fire safety strategies, yeah. uh, fire manuals, fire risk manuals, fire and emergency risk. There's so many variations. And I know what I think are differences between a, uh, an emergency manual and a fire procedure and a fire strategy. But would you sort of concur that there, there is general, because everybody's got different terms for um, different but, documents? But that's it. And the reason I wrote the past 9-11 back in 2007 was purely because of this, because the lack of, of uh, consistency in, the, in an approach. Yeah. So the document is meant to be a framework document that doesn't tell you how to do it, but it gives you an idea of the areas that should be covered within every fire strategy. Yeah. It was designed to be an international document rather than, say, it wasn't about approved document B, for instance, or BSW9W9. It's about any type of system anywhere in, in the world, basically. Do you think there's um, flaws in the, in the current system where generally fire engineering runs up to the end of REBA stage four and then some organisations might use a fire engineer to do the construction stage fire engineering strategy, which obviously talk about sort of the temporary works going on within large structures. And then very rarely 
does anyone come back from Reba stages one through four to say, here's your as-built fire strategy? That's absolutely right. And this is one of the big problems is that uh, there's there's no follow-up. And uh, you get this fire engineer spent lots of time and trouble to come up with this fantastic fire strategy, hands it over, the architects approve it, it gets approved, building enforcement approves it, and then suddenly the job is finished. That's but it. it's not finished, as you know. Right. It's a it's a working, living document. And when we go back to the organic idea, it's not just about organic every few years. It's about the the, the strategy should should go right to the very end. It's be part of the handover documentation. Yeah. And there's a lost opportunity there really with fire engineering consultancies because ultimately they're, they're I mean, a lot of them don't want to bid for like stage five and six, you know, or there are only there are only a few numbers really that do do mm. decent sort of Reba stage five construction fire engineering strategies. I think historically it's always been offered, um, if I'm being honest, but it's, the uptake was very, very low. Yeah, See, now, Paul will probably agree it's a completely different game now. Yes. Um, in the sense yeah. that everyone wants to support Well, now we're trying to drag fire engineers in to do that and they're like, well, I'm not quite sure. But, I mean, with, with buildings, fire engineers get the opportunity to work for sort of, I mean, on massive projects, it could be sort of five or six years, of course, doing, you know, up to the point where construction starts. But, I mean, ultimately, these buildings have got like 50-year life, depending on their what, what they've been aged for. It could be yes. 60 years. I mean, some are 100, right, particularly the older buildings. Um and the replacements of older buildings, but fire engineers sort of missed the trick that potentially there's a 50-year client there, right? Well, well this is it. In fact, one chapter in the book covers the, the, the fire engineering, the people side of fire engineering, and I've, ident- I've actually used a story to identify two types of fire engineer. <clears throat> one is a, is a female fire engineer who goes out to Dubai and she finds a lot of hostility towards her from architects mainly, yeah. finding out that they've used fire engineers in the past who are very intransigent, who think they know best, who, who are quite forceful, don't do as I say and that sort of thing. And uh, at the end of the day, that can cause a problem, cause friction, and the, the fire strategies can sometimes be undermined by just the, the way we approach the problem. Yeah. So I think fire engineers have to understand how to deal with uh, other stakeholders and you can't you can't be that, that sort of person who's going to enforce what they have to do it. You have to understand their point of view and make a, a reasoned argument yeah, for a, for a fire strategy, and she wins them over in the end. In the case study, she wins them over. Yes, and was she actually gets a bottle of champagne. I was interested as well. to know if that was based on uh, somebody you know. There, there is. I've actually <laughs> I've actually met all sorts of fire engineers. In fact, I wrote another book called "The Seven Traits of, uh, of Highly Effective Fire Engineers." Well, that's um. So, so what if um you do make this point in your book, um, that fire strategists should should go back to basics and be able to think for themselves. What what are these characteristics that would make? And I put the same question to yourself, Anthony, because I know you have a a, a little team of uh, fire strategists. What are the characteristics that, in your opinion, Paul, that would make a good fire strategist? First of all, they should actually like what they're doing. And uh, I've worked with, uh, and probably probably worked as well with people who are there because the pay's pretty good, and they they'll just try and get away with what they can they can do as possible and the pay's getting better as well right it's getting better and you get more people but it's a passion you need a passion you need to be objective you need to take an interest in the, in the industry itself not just uh, turn up at nine o'clock go home at five o'clock and done your few hours work and that's it you forget about fire you really to actually understand you've got to be taking part in fact listen to podcasts like yeah. this it's it's an intuitive it's interactive it's, it's someone who actually likes what they do are objective about what what they come up because it, it's a huge subject fire engineering in yeah, the day it covers everything so i do wonder where the fire engineers of tomorrow are going to come from because if you go into your average sixth form college 
or whatever, you know, who's going in there and actually sort of raising it as, I accept engineering is a subject in itself, but fire engineering as itself is almost something that we should actually be looking towards. I mean, well, I'd never even heard of what a fire engineer, what a fire engineer was, or what a fire engineering involved uh, until I actually got the job. What, what, what sort <laughs> of characteristics would you look for in a, a fire engineer on your team? And um, I mean, for me, a big thing is just, an, I mean, an eye for detail. And it sounds really stupid, but you, uh, the type of person you need really does need to have a keen eye for detail. And I mean, like Paul said, there's a lot of people you work with who are just there to earn the money, go home. Um, they're not interested in actually developing the industry as such. Yeah. But Do you really want the drawdown. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> what you really want is people who want to make the industry better and actually put the effort in to contribute mm. to that. Yeah. And I think the other thing is that generally, and this would be my opinion, the fire industry currently is broken. It's really broken. And there is, you know, assurance is rock bottom competence not necessarily competency in terms of everybody but the perception of competence in the fire engineering yes. and fire risk management fraternity is rock bottom perception is rock bottom but grenfell has exposed certain problems within the industry and uh, it's it's been the same since i joined i mean obviously i'm a lot older than you are but uh, you don't uh, look it for the record when i, when I <laughs> thank you very much uh, but when i first joined the industry i remember reading an article about the benefits of sprinkler systems and i read a similar article about two or three years ago yeah, it's probably the same one. And I just wonder, I mean, when I first uh, started in the fire engine, my first uh, computer was a little uh, 1K of RAM and something. It was, And look at computers today. But the fire industry has not developed in the same way. The big thing, obviously, is performance-based fire engineering, which has still not been fully accepted by a lot of people. Yeah. Well, you do make that point in your book. You outline, in fairness, a fairly balanced view of the benefits and limitations of both using the prescriptive codes for a fire strategy and uh, performance-based data. Um, and, and, and you weren't advocating one or the other initially. You were just sort of explaining the differences, really. As you've, you, I alluded to earlier, you've worked on a number of BS codes and PAS documents. Um, these prescriptive rules... Can they be relied upon? I mean, obviously, we have recent history of, you know, being called into question a lot of fundamentals that we assume to be um, in the fire industry um, golden. Um, is, are we uh, right to hold that view now? Should we be using prescriptive codes for fire strategies? Some aspects, you can you can argue that, that perhaps they haven't been proved to be wrong. Yeah. For instance, the travel distances, the spacing of fire detectors on a ceiling are all based on on a concept and ideas, yeah. and they just tend to be taken on board. They don't seem to be wrong, so therefore they keep getting used. Yeah, they've got it's to not, start somewhere. If yeah. it's not broke, don't fix it, basically. Exactly, yeah. that, that's that's a concept. But but uh, other countries have been looking at different ways of, of analysing uh, a fire strategy, and I've been, obviously, as part of my recent research, of looking at different countries in terms of how they approach uh, fire safety, prescriptive and performance-based. Mm. Prescriptive is still quite common outside of the US, Australia, and New Zealand and the UK, and uh, but uh, it's getting a hold in. I would say. Do you think some of the problems that we're seeing at the moment in the UK are where potentially, and this sort of links back to things that you've said in your book as well, where maybe you've said fire engineers need to think for themselves rather than rely on prescriptive codes. Yes. Does do you think? And I'll just grab a, an, an example out the air. The whole under eighteen meters as long as your cladding's nine millimetres or thicker, timber's okay, right? People would say, well, that's sort of prescriptive from ADB, or at least the old yes, version of yeah, ADB, yeah. right? You then get to a point where 
someone who doesn't think for themselves can quite legitimately go and build yourselves an 18 meter tall building clad it in timber and say well it's co-compliant i don't need to think about the risk that might present even though from a a, a building regulation um performance-based solution it says you do need to think about it because it's a combustible material and you're adding to the external facade of the building for example i think i think what you've hit upon there is something that i've been trying to get across and uh going back to this 18 meter i've seen buildings being built to 17.8 meters just to avoid yeah of course in terms of uh like uh, fire fire fighting facilities it's uh that, that's bit that's quite sad but what i've been trying what i get across is is the fact that people they're, they're presented with a with a fire strafe for building they're presented with the codes, and all they do is they, they take the codes and they put them onto the building without thinking about uh, the, the greater yeah. picture. And this is what the book is all about. It's Absolutely. trying to get you to think in a different way. And the competency required to do that, grab the code, put the number in the box mm. for a fire strategy, the competency is a lot lower than That's right. understand the, the performance-based regulation, yeah, yeah, yeah. look at what maybe ADB says, think about that in the context of the building you're mm. constructing, and then have a professional judgment on that. That's why I think it's useful because most complex buildings today, I mean, we look around, here we are in, in the uh, King's Cross development, huge variety of complex styles. Yeah. I mean, to try and apply prescriptive standards just wouldn't work. So yeah. if you, before you apply performance-based requirements, you really need to think about what, what you're doing, what you're trying to achieve, what type of uh, profile of people are going to be in that building, uh, what, what are the facilities for fire. It's... It's common sense. It goes back to yeah, common sense. Absolutely. And engineering common sense is worth its weight in gold. And this is what you're referring to, the spirit of the standard, <clears throat> yes. which is something you talk about in your book, as opposed to understanding the letter of the spirit, but uh, letter of the standard. Yeah, I mean, the people, people can, everyone can read a document. Well, most people can read a document. But it's actually applying that document and understanding what the authors of that British standard or the regulations are trying to achieve. Because they're, they're trying to achieve, a, a, a trying to cover most building types. They can't, foresee every type of building and some of these documents were written 20 years ago uh, before new techniques are in so it's really going back to to understand the basics getting fire engineers to just think i mean it's it's, it's not hard to think what they're trying to achieve yeah. go back to perform their performance objectives and then see if there are other ways of doing it i think i'm a i mean i'm a firm believer in particularly when you get like new more complex buildings is you kind of you get your drawings you got your approved document b or triple nine one or double nine double nine whatever you're using and you almost carry out a gap analysis of where does this design not conform to a typical building yeah. standard or a code that you're actually trying to adopt. And it's those areas where it doesn't meet that. That's where, you, as a fire engineer, you have to apply your own logic. And, you know, it's, it is a risk-based approach. Yes. And you apply it in that way, and that's how you come up with some of those fire-engineered solutions. They're not necessarily complex fire-engineered solutions, but it's a fire engineer's opinion. You're applying your engineering judgment to justify some arrangements. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... We're just in a really weird place at the moment where fire engineers are either unwilling to or unable to actually provide professional judgment. What the world wants now is black and white. Is it okay? Has it been tested? Or is it not okay? Well, is, that, is that not very similar to the the risk the, the, the lowly fire risk assessors uh, role in as much as that they have the standards to which to follow to check when they're on site, but ultimately... A risk assessment, in its truest sense, means they need to be assessing the risks individually based mm. on the merits of the building and in their own yeah. judgment. And a fire engineer's role is very really similar to that of a risk assessor in that respect. Yeah, 
I, I just don't think fire engineers at the moment are allowed to apply reasonable skill and care. No, I, I think the, I that, the wings have been clipped slightly. Yeah, definitely. Yes, yeah. I definitely feel yeah. like that's the case at the moment. I mean, rightly or wrongly, but I think a lot of it comes down to, as you talked in the last episode about professional indemnity insurance, oh, yeah. yes. about perceived risk rather than real risk. And, you know, people are being asked very, very binary questions now, particularly in the built environment. I mean, it's easier sure, when you're yeah. designing mm. stuff, but in the built environment where you're being asked, for example, tell me that this building meets the current building regulations or met yeah. the previous ones. And people say, no, I can't do that, but I can tell you that it's safe to occupy. And you say, but that's the spirit of the building <laughs> regulations. So if, it, yes. if it's safe to occupy, then by virtue of that, did meet the building regulations. I mean, you only have to look at the recent government advice notes, and now I mean, mortgage providers and insurers have jumped on this like crazy, and left, right, and centre. If anyone's going to remortgage and they live in a high-rise block of flats, sometimes even low-rise, mm. um, their mortgage provider insurer are asking for a letter from a competent person, um, which you've got to meet a certain set of criteria. Of which um, there are two hundred and fifty of those in the world <laughs> at the moment, by the way. Yeah, and you have to get you know somebody to basically effectively sign off the building to say it complies with the government advice note. But this is going back to America. When I was in America, I, one of my apartments I lived in was uh, at Sprinklers, and I thought that's that's novel, isn't it? And uh, obviously, America are very much more into sprinkler systems than we are in the UK. But uh, but recently, I've been watching the news after Grenfell and the <clears throat> argument for sprinklers in in residential buildings. And to me, it makes common sense. For instance, to sprinkler system that every building should have sprinklers. And if I was buying an apartment and it said, by the way, you've got sprinkler protection. I think that's a big bonus. I'd pay an extra £1,000 for that apartment just yeah. for that facility. And people don't see that. I think a lot of developers are having the situation where, oh, well, we don't really want to put sprinklers in, but the development next door, they're putting sprinklers in. And if someone's going to have a choice between a flat with or without, they're going to buy one that's with. So exactly. It's just a, yeah. they're doing it in that way, not for the right reasons. But, but then there are also developers thinking the opposite of that and thinking people might choose ours because they haven't got them. Because people in the UK think, oh, my God, they're going to leak. You know, yeah, oh God, there's a go negative kind of that. Yeah, you, you just like light a lighter, and yeah, Britney Spears did that, didn't she? Yeah, like, everyone seems to die hard, haven't they? Where you know, obviously, one sprinkler goes off, and all of a sudden, your whole flat's flooded. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> it was just handy that there was one bulb in that one, and the rest of it was pre action, right? That was really handy. <laughs> well, I, I must say, the worst by. case of that was a government minister back after the Windsor Castle fire, and he said, Thank God there weren't sprinkler systems, otherwise, the damage would have been a lot worse. Can you believe it? Can you really believe it? <laughs> I went to a fire brigade conference before, and um. Somebody raised. The, somebody said, "You know, why don't you just put sprinklers in these buildings?" We talk about art galleries. Yeah. And um, the lady said, "Well, you can't put sprinklers in because if you put sprinklers in, obviously there's a small fire and everything gets ruined." Yeah. <laughs> like, no, only the area. Only that's the on thing fire. that's on fire <laughs> gets ruined. <laughs> and, and to be honest, it's perhaps it's our industry has got to be blamed because we're not getting that message out, and uh, we're allowing this message to be covered up yeah. by people trying to save a few pounds here and there. Yeah. And also, fire engineers have been driven by value engineering, have been basically value engineering sprinklers out of yes. things that would ordinarily need them, but building control then accept them, then that becomes the norm. Yeah, yeah. And then everyone says, oh, what do you mean the fire brigade want you to put sprinklers into retail units under residential now? Why, why would they be doing that? We've not done that for years. And you think, yeah. well, we've been value engineering it out for years, and now the fire brigade are saying, we don't want you to do that anymore. Let's go back to the dry riser, the height of a building, and yeah. trying to design a building site so just doesn't have to have that yeah. requirement. I mean, it's just so short-sighted. And that's why I'm worried about the two-tier approach with the Hackett, you know, is it in scope or out of yes. scope? Then yeah. you know, based on experience, I'm sure, everyone would just build to just below it so you don't quite have to meet right. all that additional criteria. Yeah. I think they'd be better off basing it on a number of floors from ground up because then... You know, you, you lose a floor, then the building is significantly shorter. Yeah. 
Whereas once you get, but you know, if you've got that many floors, you're going to be above that. You know, yes. that, you're going to hit that requirement, and it's a lot easier. It's more black and white. Whereas at the moment, it's yeah. even the height thing's ambiguous. Your facade's one height, and then your top floor. Is but what we're height. basically doing is saying that in buildings that are in scope, you've got to prove to someone that the building's safe. Yeah. Well, we do that with all buildings anyway. That's what building yes. control approval is. Yeah. Right. So what we're saying is building control approval. No one's competent to do that. So we need our own special little department that worries about the riskier residential buildings, the rest of the buildings, we're not worried about them too much. And you think, well, let's just make building control better. Yes. And let's have all buildings in scope for this make building safer thing. Right. And then engineer and design them properly. I think we'll all agree the term high rise means high risk is nonsense. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It's, you know, yes, there are, increased risks and chance obviously more flats more chance of having a fire but it doesn't mean the building's risky I, I find it interesting to hear uh, the views around the table on sprinklers and sort of like a, a consensus um, you're probably aware that there's question marks raised over the viability of a stay put approach um, possibly in the wider media possibly from people who aren't involved in the fire safety industry are seeing it from a very different view um, just to, to, relatively briefly, because it is a, a long argument that, that could be made in favour of stay put or against stay put, depending on the side of the fence you are. But um, Paul, would you have a sort of a, a concerted view on the viability in principle of stay put, which we've had since the 1960s, really, yes. as an approach? It's quite an emotive uh, subject, stay put. And then obviously, if everything works as it should, you've got perfect compartments you got this design staircase, could be a central staircase or end of the end of a corridor staircase. Uh, it would all work fine, and you don't really want to evacuate every single person due to a fire in one apartment block. But as we've seen with Grenfell, is it, is it viable to even consider evacuating everybody from a, a, a uh, well a from, a, from a from a high rise building? Uh, if, as I say, if the compartmentation has been properly maintained. Uh, the stay put strategy is is a sensible mm. strategy. I'm not saying it's perfect by any means, but it avoids the need to have, have a full evacuation. And would you? Um, yeah, no, I completely view? agree. Um, I would say, obviously, given recent events and what's happened, that it wouldn't be a bad thing for the fire brigade to have the facility to be able to evacuate a floor or a building should the need arise. Um, but I wouldn't suggest that we go to simultaneous at all. I think it's. I mean, you, you start looking at sizing stairs for simultaneous evacuation, you're looking at disabled refugees, mm, yeah. you need on-site staff potentially to evacuate people from these refugees, maybe yes. even evacuation lifts. It just makes, it's, it's, you know, it's costly enough as it is. Um, I'm not saying value engineer it out, but I think yeah. trying to throw everything at it, it's uh, unnecessary. Cost. I mean, how do you change the whole built environment in the UK, well, exactly, right? Yeah. I mean, and how does that happen? Would you say anything that's built now can stay, stay put, but anything going forward goes simultaneous? You know, that's even more confusing. Yeah, and then how does that really... modify the value of existing buildings if the perception is new ones are safe and the old ones aren't? I mean, it's just... Oh, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a minefield. And we've got to think of a, of a strategy yeah. for this strategy. For I just I mean. Yeah, and yeah. I, I just think on paper, when you look at the statistics, I mean, we, I mean Grenfell Tower was absolutely horrific, obviously. Yeah. And we can see now why that happened. I think we all understand why that happened um, in terms of the development of the fire. I mean, I still, I'm not sure people still understand why that building was allowed to, ha- to be in that situation. But I think the, the, the danger is that when you put it into perspective, there is a reason why you can name on two fingers the multi-fatality fires in yes. purposeful blocks in the UK. Yeah. And the fact they're 10 years apart almost that should give a great deal of confidence in the built environment, particularly when 
the commentators say, well, actually, passive fire protection is an absolute car crash. And we've got Nar Rowan coming on next episode. And I'm sure he'll say passive fire protection building wide is a complete car crash. But yet, with thousands of fires in purpose-built blocks every year in this imperfect um, yes. built environment, mm -hmm. we've only had two major multi-fatality yeah. fires. And that's right. It's a probability aspect too. But, but obviously, go back to emotive as well. When you see yeah, exactly. people dying in a fire... It's something that shouldn't really happen anywhere. And you see other uh, high-rise blocks in other parts of the world, Dubai, for instance, where there was similar fires growing on the outside of a building where everyone got out perfectly well. Yeah, absolutely. Paul, you closed your book, um, pointing towards the idea of uh, a sequel about wider crisis management. Obviously, you know what actually happened is you went off and wrote a book about your bar in, uh, in <laughs> Key West. Uh, yeah. Key West. That, that was yeah, I wrote that. That's that was finished. I've Any other books, books on the horizon? Uh, yes, I'm actually working on a on a book right now called Holistic Fire Engineering. It's part of my. I've been moved to Poland about two years ago. I've been oh, studying wow. a PhD on this subject of holistic fire engineering. The concept being to introduce threat analysis, which is part of crisis management, into every fire strategy analysis, as well as a full objective settings, including environmental uh, aspects of a fire strategy, for instance. So it's it's trying to have a more holistic model for fire strategies. And the other thing, it's got to be online, so anyone can have access to this anywhere in the world. And so I, I've been developing that. Hopefully, I'll, there'll be a book out early 2020 on the subject. And... Uh, might be interesting. Fantastic. Paul, yeah. we'd love to have you back on then uh, when that comes out. In the meantime, each week we have our 90-second uh, quiz. Sure. Um, are you happy to take part? Well, at the moment, the leader, um, who's at the top of the leaderboard, Tom? Um, Aaron Paul. Aaron John. <laughs> <laughs> it was. Isn't Aaron Paul Aaron the John. YouTuber? I don't know. Uh, Aaron John's top. Um, we have two points. Um, so anywhere between 0 and uh, 1 is so far is average. So you haven't got too high to set. Mm -hmm. Any more than 2, then uh, you'll be top of our leaderboard. Your 90 seconds starts now. Paul, in Porticello, Idaho, concealed weapons are illegal unless they are what? Uh, unless they are, is it, is it non-automatic or? Openly displayed. In US emergency rooms, what is common, the most common toy found in patients' orifices? <laughs> oh, uh, common toy? Uh, I don't know, Mickey Mouse. Nearly, Barbie dolls. Oh. The most common type of plastic surgery done in the US on men is what? Uh, men is, uh, yeah, uh, a stomach, uh, nipple reduction. On... Breast reduction, <laughs> we'll give you a point for that. On Sunday, in Providence, Rhode Island, it's illegal to buy what? Uh... Oh, firearms. Fish. Nearly a toothbrush. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, it is. In Canada, 1923, what was created for first-time criminals? Canada. Uh, first-time criminals. Uh, well, I don't know. What, for the first Pass. time, first offence, what should they get? Oh, uh, a damn good... Spanking. <laughs> a spanking machine is correct. <laughs> it is illegal to cross the Iowa state boundaries wearing what on your head? Uh Wearing a helmet. A duck. What was it that <laughs> sank the German submarine U-120 in World War Two? Oh. It was a facility on the on the uh, submarine. Oh, obviously it was the, it was the men's room. Very near. Uh, I'll give you half mark. A broken toilet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's definitely what yeah, the answer was. Point, yeah, that's that's it. Time's up. I'm trying to be American, yeah. Time's up. Time's up. How many points was that, Tom? Amazingly, it was two and a half. Two and a half. We got a new leader. <laughs> <laughs> 
There Paul, you go. Fantastic. Congratulations, Paul. Um, Paul, where can people get hold of a copy of your book, Fire Strategies and Strategic Thinking? It's on Amazon. Uh, just just type in the name and you'll find it there. And, okay, uh, brilliant book. I've re- I spent the last couple of weeks reading it. I was going to take it with me to Thailand, but I finished you read it, it beforehand. already. I read it beforehand. Um, Paul, um, Firecubed, how can people get hold of you if they'd like uh, to? There's a Firecubed website, just firecubed.com, and they'll find us there. And uh, they, there's a little page they can type in their, their queries or whatever and we can help out okay lovely wonderful um, thanks ever so much for coming on Anthony I think you're coming back later in the series to talk to us about Guidance Note, guidance note 14 uh, well all the Guidance Notes but I'll try and keep it interesting excellent okay <laughs> we look forward to having good you good luck if you'd like to come on the show or you'd like to comment to me and Tom about uh, about the show you can reach us at Dave and Tom at openfirepodcast.com We'd love to hear from you. Other than that, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. See you next week. Cheers. Cheers. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the persons appearing in the podcast and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Frankham or any of its officials. The appearance of guests on or the mention of third-party information, products or services or organizations within the podcast does not imply any approval, recommendation, certification or endorsement of them or of any entity they represent. Our podcasts are provided for general information only and should not be treated as substitute for professional advice or supervision from an appropriate property or built asset professional. Whilst all attempts are made to present accurate information, it may not be appropriate for your specific circumstances and the information presented in the podcast may become outdated over time. Frankham Consultancy Group and its subsidiaries here in Frankham make no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the Open Fire podcasts. Any reliance on the information provided is at your own risk. Frankham does not assume any liability for the use of, reference to or reliance on the podcast or the information presented within. 